Welcome to The Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Em. And I'm Kaz. And in this episode, we're going to do something a wee bit different, because rather than talking about violence that's in the Bible, we'll be thinking about how contemporary violence is sometimes justified or excused because of the use or misuse of biblical texts. Now, the Bible has a long history of being used to justify violence and intolerance. Wars have been fought, unjust laws and institutions have been created, and whole communities have been marginalised, demonised and ostracised with the help of some specially chosen biblical passages to give them credence. Can you think of any examples of this happening, Em? Yeah, unfortunately, I can think of quite a few. So, the Bible has been quoted to support slavery colonialism and imperialism, uh, apartheid, anti-Semitism, white supremacy, Islamophobia, xenophobia, misogyny, and many, many other forms of intolerance and violence that are typically targeted against already marginalised and minoritised communities. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the list goes on, doesn't it? But today we're going to focus on the way that the Bible has also a very long history of being appropriated to justify violence and intolerance against the gay, lesbian and bisexual communities. Now, we're both aware that certain biblical texts have also been horribly misused to foster intolerance against transgender and gender queer communities. But honestly, that issue deserves a podcast episode all of its own. I mean, we could and should easily spend an entire episode covering that topic. Oh yeah, totally, totally. So just to give you all a content warning at the start, we're going to be talking about homophobia and homophobic intolerance. If you find this topic particularly difficult to listen to, please take care if you want to carry on with the episode. And we'll also add some links to resources and support services in the show notes for anyone who might want to check them out. Okay, so something we should probably stress at the outset is that we're not going to suggest that the Bible is the sole source or even the primary source of homophobic intolerance and violence. No, yeah, that's a really good point. Homophobia is very much rooted in secular culture too, and has been for centuries. Yeah, I think that religious values and cultural values overlap a lot, don't they? And and they also influence each other too. But I don't think we can deny that religious communities over the centuries have misused the Bible to perpetuate homophobic ideologies and to give them a sort of divine authority. And that misuse is still very much happening today. Just in April of this year, conservative US Christian pastor and activist Sean Foyt organised a rally outside Disney Studios in Burbank, Florida to protest about various things, including what Foyt and his followers perceived to be Disney's pro-LGBT stance. Now, I came across this case when I was listening to a podcast episode about the protest, the fabulous QAnon Anonymous podcast, which I love. And one of the hosts actually went to the rally to see what was happening and to report back on it. Now, he recorded quite a few of the speakers and honestly, um, a lot of them were quoting biblical texts out of context and spouting Christian rhetoric to really demonise queer people and queer lives. Ugh, that's awful. Yeah, it was so toxic and very, very disturbing. And it's even more troubling when we consider the fact that violent hate crimes against queer people are becoming even more pervasive. According to Home Office statistics from the UK, violent crimes committed against people because of their sexuality or their gender identity have more than doubled in the past four years. So things seem to be getting worse. 
And if we take stock of the significant impact of homophobia on the lives of gay, lesbian and bisexual people, then I think it's something we really need to address in a podcast about the Bible and violence. Agreed. I was doing some research for this episode and looking at true crime to profile in our conversation today. And the thing I found utterly overwhelming was the sheer volume of homophobic hate crimes. These horrific crimes are often committed against individuals, but we also see attacks carried out in places marked out as safe for queer communities. I'm thinking of the arson attack on the upstairs lounge where 32 people died in 1973, or the mass shooting at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando in 2016, where 49 people were murdered. It's utterly heartbreaking, and as you say, violence against queer people is only increasing. Yeah, yeah. So this isn't just an academic exercise in biblical interpretation. These texts and their interpretations have had and continue to have a real and lasting impact on the lives of queer people. Religious intolerance of queer lives plays its part in sustaining and justifying all sorts of violence against the queer community, from physical violence to bullying and discrimination to spiritual abuse. When we label someone as sinful, we devalue them and we dehumanise them, and that makes it far easier for people to hurt them emotionally, physically and spiritually. So this is a massive topic, Kaz. How are you going to tackle it? Well, I think we should take a closer look at a number of biblical texts that have been used repeatedly over the years to validate religious intolerance of queer lives and identities. These texts are sometimes referred to as so-called clobber texts, so essentially texts that are used to clobber or Bible thump queer people into believing that the Bible disapproves of them. So Em, I've got a little pop quiz for you. I'm going to spring on you here. Can you tell the listeners where to find these clobber texts? You know I love a quiz and I've done my homework, Kaz. Oh, good. (laughs) There are six clobber texts used to argue that the Bible sees homosexuality as sinful. Two in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, which are found in Genesis 19 and Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 and chapter 20 verse 13. And there are also four texts from the Christian New Testament. We've got 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 10, Romans chapter 1 verses 26 to 27, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 and Jude chapter 1 verses 6 to 7. That's great. Well done. 10 out of 10. (laughs) You get a gold star. Okay, so shall we try to go through them one by one to see why they've earned their place on the clobber list? We won't have time to delve into each of them in massive depth, but if any of our listeners are keen to do some research themselves, we'll put links in our show notes to the resources that we've used. Right, so shall we start with the first one on the list, Genesis chapter 19? Yep, sure. So can you tell us what it's about? Genesis 19 recounts the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you might remember we spoke about this narrative during our hashtag HeToo episode on male rape. And this is the story about two heavenly messengers who are staying with Abraham's nephew Lot in the city of Sodom. But during the evening, all the men of Sodom surround the house and tell Lot to send out his two guests because the crowd are planning to gang rape them. Lot refuses to do this and offers the men of Sodom his two virgin daughters instead. But the men just get increasingly agitated, and eventually the two angelic messengers intervene and strike all the men of Sodom blind so that they can't find the door of Lot's house. 
The angels then tell Lot he has to leave Sodom immediately as God is planning to destroy the city. And after Lot has left, we're told God rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying every living thing in both cities and all the surrounding land. Now, this text earns its place on the clobber list because traditional interpretations have often insisted that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah are all homosexuals. And that's why God wants to destroy the city in the first place. And the fact that these men are intent on having sex with the two male angels is offered up as a so-called evidence of their homosexuality. But that interpretation doesn't quite work, does it? No. Because the men of Sodom aren't wanting to have sex with these men. They're wanting to rape them. Mm. And we need to be really clear here that men who want to gang rape other men aren't driven by homosexual desire, or in fact any type of sexual desire. They're driven by a desire to exert their power and control over their victims, to humiliate them, to emasculate them, and to show their contempt for them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's completely true. So the biblical text doesn't explicitly mention what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah actually are or why God felt compelled to destroy the two cities. All we know is that God had told Abraham he's planning to destroy them because the outcry against them, and I'm quoting here, is so great and their sin so grievous. There's no mention of what this grievous sin actually is or what the outcry is about. And while there are a few other biblical texts that mention Sodom and Gomorrah, none of them explicitly bring up homosexuality either. For example, the prophet Jeremiah associates the two cities with adultery and lies. And the prophet Ezekiel describes the people of Sodom as having been filled with, and I'm quoting, pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. Plus, they didn't help the poor and needy. So that suggests the city's biggest faults were injustice and oppression, not homosexuality, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, another of our clobber texts, the New Testament book of Jude, chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, alludes to Sodom and Gomorrah's sins being sexual in nature, but it's quite vague as to what these sins actually are. They, and I'm quoting, indulged in sexual immorality and went after other flesh. Hang on, what does it mean by other flesh? I don't know. It's not that clear at all what it means. It could be Jude's way of alluding delicately to same-sex desire, but that's far from certain. Other flesh could refer to sexual practices such as bestiality, or maybe it's referring to the men of Sodom wanting to rape two angels, two heavenly beings, rather than human beings. Or some people think that other flesh refers to foreign visitors to the land because there is a law in the book of Exodus chapter 22 that explicitly forbids the abuse of sojourners or immigrants living in Israel. And God warns that he will strike down anyone who harms such a person living among them. Interesting. So it could mean a lot of things, couldn't it? But the main thing is that I'd like to think we can score off Genesis 19 and Jude chapter 1 verses 6 to 7 from our list of clobber texts. The men of Sodom are would-be rapists. Maybe that's the crime God wanted to punish them for. But we can't say with any degree of certitude that these men are homosexuals or that the sin which caused God to destroy the two cities was homosexuality. I agree. I'm striking both those texts off my list as we speak. Good. But it's so interesting, isn't it, that people who use Genesis 19 as a clobber text can't see the real violence that's in it. It seems to be easier to believe that God would be so enraged by homosexuality that God would destroy two entire cities than to even contemplate that what makes God really angry is sexual violence and oppression. 
Yes, yeah. It's as though they're framing same-sex desires as way more heinous than gang rape or the oppression of the poor or the abuse of immigrants living in your community. It makes me think of those religious leaders today who spend a lot of time and effort railing against the evils of homosexuality when they could be devoting their time and energies to dealing with real forms of injustice, like poverty, white supremacy, climate change, or our current endemic of domestic violence. But no, they'd rather foam at the mouth about people living in committed, consensual and loving same-sex relationships. It makes me mad. Totally. Or they blame queer people for anything bad that happens in the world. Like Jerry Falwell, the evangelical pastor and founder of the Moral Majority, he told his followers back in the 1990s that the HIV-AIDS crisis was, quote, God's punishment for homosexuals. Oh, yeah, I remember that. It was awful. Or here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we've got the so-called apostle Brian Tamaki, leader of Destiny Church, who preached that our devastating earthquakes in recent years were the result of, scare quotes, sexual perversions. Yeah, and what about Robert Jeffress, the US pastor and evangelical advisor of former President Donald Trump? In one of his books, Jeffress wrote that President Barack Obama's support for same-sex marriage was paving the way for the return of the Antichrist. Now, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure the Antichrist has more things to occupy his mind than lesbians picking out their wedding china. (laughs) I really feel those claims are such a tragic reflection on the fears and insecurities of the people making them, but it's such damaging rhetoric. Oh yeah, totally, yeah. So what's the next clobber text we're looking at? Let's move on to two verses from the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 13. Now, just for a bit of background, the book of Leviticus is essentially a collection of laws that God handed down to Moses to give to the Hebrew people. The aim of these laws is to guide God's covenant people to live a holy and righteous life that's pleasing to God. The laws cover lots of different things, including purity, clean and unclean foods, agricultural practices, clothing, religious rituals, and various rules about community relationships, including sexual relationships. Now, although most Christian communities today don't feel obliged to follow all these laws, some Christians do like to keep Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 and chapter 20 verse 13 on their list of clobber texts very close to their heart. So, in other words, The specific verses condemning homosexuality are cherry-picked out of all the hundreds of other laws in Leviticus? Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a bit suspicious, isn't it? My homophobic bias detector is bleeping away like mad. Yes, and I'm not surprised. It's perfectly fine to eat pork, or wear mixed fabrics, or get a tattoo, all these things that appear to be prohibited by the Leviticus laws. But heaven help you if you disobey these two verses. Would you... Like to read them out for us, Em? Sure. I'll read the NRSV translation, but most English translations are pretty similar. So Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Ugh, that word abomination really makes me shudder. Mm, Yeah, yeah. So both these texts seem fairly straightforward, but are they? 
Well, maybe not entirely, because if we look at the original Hebrew text and read it word for word, it's not as clear as we might think. So here's what the Hebrew literally says word for word. So we'll start with um, Leviticus 18, uh, verse 22. And with a male, you will not lie down, beds of a woman. It is an abomination. And then Leviticus 20, verse 13. And a man who lies down with a male, beds of a woman, an abomination they have done, the two of them. They will surely die. Their blood is upon them. Okay, so first off, what are beds of a woman? That's a good question. It's, it's not overly clear, is it? The Hebrew word for beds can mean a literal bed or bedding, or it can also be used as a euphemism for sex. But exactly what it means here is open to interpretation. So unless we can travel back in time to the biblical period and speak to the writer of this law, then we can't really know what they intended when they wrote them. So we just can't be sure about their meaning. But what we can do is suggest that they may have other meanings that don't have anything to do with male same-sex desires or men who have sex with men. So can you share some alternative meanings with us? Sure, yeah. One possible interpretation I've heard recently was proposed by a biblical scholar from Finland, Dr. Joanna Toyuranuvori. Now, I'm sorry, um, I have probably butchered her lovely Finnish surname, so I'm just going to refer to her as Dr. Joanna. And she points out that the phrase beds of a woman doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. But in other biblical texts, we do find the phrase bed of a male, which seems to allude to women having sex with a man. So just to give you an example, in a couple of texts, a woman who has not, and quoting here, known the bed of a male is a woman who has not had sex with a man. So in other words, she's a virgin. And you can find that phrase in Numbers chapter 31, verses 17 to 18, and Judges, chapter 21, verses 11 to 12. So, Dr. Joanna suggests that in our two Leviticus verses, the men being associated with beds of a woman could be men who have sex with a woman. Do you follow the logic? Yes, I think so. If a woman who knows the bed of a male refers to a woman who's had sex with a man, then it follows that a man who's associated with the beds of a woman is a man who's had sex with a woman, right? Yes, exactly. So the Hebrew phrase, do not lie down with a man, beds of a woman, could be translated as something like, do not have sex with a woman along with another man. In other words, two men should not simultaneously share a bed or have sex with the same woman at the same time. So can you think, um, why might there be a law against that? To be honest, Kaz, I wouldn't wish two husbands on any woman. One husband is more than enough admin. (laughs) But on a more serious note, I guess that if the woman got pregnant... How would the two men know which of them was the father? Mm. So having a law against two men having sex with the same woman at the same time could make sense because biblical Israel was a patrilineal society, wasn't it? Yes. A man would pass on his name and his property to his children, or more specifically, his sons. So he'd want to know that the children he'd left his inheritance to really were his. Yes. Yeah, I think Dr. Joanna's interpretation does make sense. Now. I'm not saying that her interpretation is definitely correct. We, we don't know that, but it is certainly plausible. I've also heard some other possible interpretations, including that it's a law prohibiting pederasty, so 
grown men having sex with boys, or some people think it's referring specifically to temple prostitution, in other words, sex performed in the context of religious rituals, while others believe it's a general prohibition against adultery or promiscuity. And I know there's quite a few other interpretations out there too. Yes, yeah, there are. So in essence, no one is entirely sure what these two verses mean, including us. And I think that's the important thing to take away from this discussion. We can't say with any certainty that these verses are referring to homosexuality or same-sex desires. So it just seems incredibly unreasonable to misuse the verses as clobber texts that justify religious homophobia. Because for all we know, they could be talking about something totally different. But the language of these verses continues to be misused by homophobes. I read a news story recently about uh, Wahaj Mahmoud Brown and his husband Ian, who were out for an evening stroll in their hometown of Plymouth, England. They were holding hands at the time, and a man walked past them, then turned round and said to them, and I'm quoting him here, you know you're an abomination. Now, I don't know if this man had the Leviticus verses in mind when he said this, but it's very telling that he used the religious language of abomination to verbally abuse Wahaj and Ian. Yeah, it's that word abomination again. It's such an awful term filled with so much disgust and hatred. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the fact that we find that word in the Bible almost sanctifies the disgust and hatred of homophobes. Yes. And that's not okay. So I'm putting a massive question mark against these verses in my list of clobber texts. Yep, me too. What are we looking at next? So now let's move on to the New Testament to look at a few verses from Paul's letters. And again, we have to acknowledge that the original language, which is Greek this time, is pretty ambiguous. But of course, that doesn't seem to stop some Christians insisting that Paul is speaking out against homosexuality. So let's start off with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Do you want to read that out for us, Em? Sure. So this is Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And in this section, he seems to be telling the Corinthian Christians to stop judging each other and to remember that they've all been sinners at one time or another. So I'll read out these verses from the NRSV translation, but I'm going to leave two of the words in the original Greek, and then we can talk about how they're translated. Now the text says, quote, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, malakoi, arsenikoites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revelers, robbers, None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Then Paul continues in the next verse saying, And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Okay, thank you. So these two Greek words that Paul mentions are malakoi and arsenikoitis. Now, malakoi generally means soft, and it can refer to something being soft to touch, like velvet, or delicate, like fine food, or gentle, like a summer breeze. It's sometimes used as an insult to refer to men who are considered morally soft, a bit degenerate or, or lazy. They enjoy an easy or luxurious lifestyle. They eat fine foods. They don't work hard. They're not manly men. The King James and Dewey Reims Bible translations of this verse 
use the word effeminate to translate malakoi. And I think that could come close to its original meaning. But on saying that, as a rule, malakoi is not used to define sexual preferences. That's, that's not its main um, meaning at all. Although that doesn't stop quite a few biblical translations giving the word this meaning. So to give you an example, the Revised Standard Version translates malakoi as male prostitutes, while quite a lot of Bible translations link the word to arsenicoitus and translate the two terms together as something relating to homosexuality. Okay, interesting. And what does arsenicoites mean? Well, again, no one's really sure. It's the first time Paul uses this word, so we don't have anything to compare it with. It's used again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, in a very similar list of bad behaviours to the one we find in 1 Corinthians. Literally, arsenal comes from the Greek word meaning male, and coitus comes from the word for bed, or it's sometimes used as a, an idiom for sex, just as the word bed is used as an idiom in English. So how do you translate that? Well, I don't know. I don't know for sure. But interestingly, arsenicoitus does get used in later Greek literature to refer to various forms of unjust or violent economic exploitation, including possibly the sexual exploitation and abuse of male slaves and prostitutes. So Paul could well have been referring to that too. But the important thing to note is that the word arsenicoitus doesn't always carry a sexual meaning and definitely doesn't seem to relate specifically to homosexuality. But again, the really frustrating thing is that it's so often translated as though it does refer to homosexuality. I've seen it translated in different Greek dictionaries and Bible translations as pederasts, men who have sex with men, perverts, sodomites, homosexuals and practicing homosexuals. Mm. Yeah, the, the King James Version translation always makes me smile a wee bit. It uses the term, and I'm quoting it here, abusers of themselves with mankind. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's just so wordy. But, but then back in the 17th century, when the King James was translated, the word homosexual hadn't even been coined. Homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, all these terms first started getting used in the late 19th century. But that's such an important point, isn't it? Mm. How appropriate is it for us to use these relatively modern words to translate a Greek term from the first century? Mm. I mean, our contemporary understandings of sexuality have changed so much since Paul's day. It's really difficult to get a sense of how he would have understood same-sex relationships. And sure, men had sex with men in Paul's Greco-Roman world, but that was way more about asserting their social status. Powerful men penetrated less powerful men, such as slaves and male prostitutes. Yeah. But this was rarely, if ever, a part of a mutual and consensual relationship. Penetrating another person, be they male or female, was a way to exert your dominance and status. It was a practice rather than a lifestyle or a marker of your sexual preferences. Yeah, that, that's a really good point to make. And, and I think that's why using terms such as homosexual to translate arsenicoitus or malakoi is really problematic, not to mention irresponsible. I mean, can these translators just think for a minute of how it must feel for a queer Christian opening their sacred scripture to 1 Corinthians 6 and seeing a word that defines who they are 
in a list of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's, it's just heartbreaking to think about. So I think this first Corinthians text and the first Timothy text too can definitely get a big question mark placed next to them on the clobber text list, right? Oh yeah, for sure. I'm actually tempted to score them out completely, but I'll use the question mark for now. The main thing, as we've already said about the other clobber texts, is that we just can't be certain what the text is referring to here, to what Paul actually meant. So can we really claim that Paul was speaking about same-sex desires, particularly in the way we understand that concept today? No, I don't think we can. We can't be certain what he meant, so no one should be using this text to tell gay and lesbian Christians that God doesn't love them. Okay, so let's look at the other text written by Paul on our clobber text list. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Can you do the honours again, M, please? Certainly. So, Paul is writing this time to the church in Rome, and in the opening chapter of his letter, he seems to be talking about people who have lost their faith in God and who choose instead to worship idols in the forms of human beings or animals. So Paul says the following about these idolaters. Quote, For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men, and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So of all the Hammer texts, this one seems to get the closest to an explicit condemnation of same-sex sexual activity. What do you think? To an extent, yes, although it's not clear what is meant by this unnatural intercourse and these shameless acts. I mean, that covers quite a lot of things and certainly doesn't have to be specifically relating to sex between men or between women, right? Mm. I mean, Paul's writings from his own Jewish context and the Hebrew Bible law codes do mention various sexual activities that are considered unnatural, like incest or bestiality, or a man having sex with a woman when she's menstruating. Mm, yeah, yeah. How do we know Paul isn't talking about some of these things? Yes, yeah, the context is all important here, isn't it? The, the so-called natural intercourse that women gave up could have been sex that led to pregnancy, which was considered natural, or the norm of the time. For all we know, these women might have preferred anal sex, or oral sex with a male partner, or anything else that doesn't involve a penis and a vagina. When he's talking about the men, Paul says that they also gave up natural intercourse, which could also mean a number of things. But he does add that they were, quote, consumed with passion for one another and engaged in shameless acts with each other. Again, I wish Paul had been a bit more explicit here. I mean, what do you mean by shameless acts, Paul? We need the details. <laughs> I know. Come on, Paul, be specific. <laughs> well, whatever it means... When I read this passage and think about the people Paul's talking about, I get this image in my head of a community of folk who are living together or united by their religious beliefs that seem to centre around nature and birds. And they're just enjoying breaking the rules and not living their lives according to convention. They remind me in a way of a hippie commune back in the 1960s. You know, they were making love, not war. They were sticking it to the man. And they enjoyed pushing back against the rules and regulations of the day, making the point that alternative lifestyles were possible or even desirable. 
Now, did some of that involve them having same-sex relationships or engaging in same-sex practices? Maybe, I, but I don't know. I don't know for sure. But Paul seems to be condemning them in the main for their unorthodox religious beliefs and practices. And he's connecting these to unorthodox sexual practices as though the two somehow went together. Yeah, I've heard some scholars suggest that all the unnatural acts Paul mentions might actually be sexual practices which form part of the group's religious rituals and worship. Yeah. But haven't we seen this line of thinking throughout history too, where Western academics and anthropologists or theologians have tried to portray non-Western and indigenous communities as godless pagans who practice perverse practices, as though their non-Christian beliefs are invariably connected to unorthodox and dangerous beliefs and sexualities. I'm thinking of the way that some biblical scholars refer to Philistine, Canaanite or Greek religions as, quote, fertility cults, mm, yeah. whose members practiced sexual rituals or shrine prostitution, despite there being no real evidence of this. It's just another way to stigmatize and marginalize anyone who doesn't conform to the expectations of white Western heteropatriarchy. Oh, absolutely. The Christian West has always celebrated and venerated whiteness, masculinity, heterosexuality and patriarchy. So by default, it's tended not to celebrate anything that's feminine or queer or other than white or joyful or liberating or life-affirming or humble or nature-oriented or tolerant of difference. And so when I read this passage in Romans chapter 1, I think that Paul is speaking about a community who've chosen their own way and he's worried about them spiritually more than anything else. But I think Christian interpretation of this passage have turned it into a blanket condemnation of queer people's choice to live their lives in a way that they want to and to love who they want and to celebrate that love. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. So what do we do with this clobber text, Kaz? Do we strike it from the record or do we have to let it stand? I think we just put one of our big question marks against it and remind queer Christians that their sacred relationship is with God. It's not with Paul, and it's not with anyone who tries to use Romans chapter 1 to condemn them or to make them feel inadequate. I mean, Paul's letter is 2,000 years old, and we could question its relevance for 21st century Christians. But I'd say that in 2022, life is tough enough for all of us, including us queer folk. So to take this very ambiguous text or to take any of these equally ambiguous clobber texts and use them to demean and condemn a fellow human being, that's the real sin in my eyes. Absolutely. And I feel like we're again seeing a few specific texts being taken literally and at face value to condemn people who don't fit the heteropatriarchal norm. There are other texts, like Paul's teaching on marriage or his position on the leadership of women, which people have no trouble dismissing or downplaying. Mm. So I feel like these Pauline texts are being used as proof texts for a homophobic agenda, which is already so prevalent in lots of Christian communities. Yeah. So Kaz, if you were to give our listeners one piece of advice about what to say to someone who's insisting that the Bible condemns queer lives and identities, what would it be? I think I would recommend that they say to that person, are you sure? Are you absolutely certain that's what the text is saying? What translation are you looking at? Have you studied the text in its original language? Have you dug a bit deeper into what it could mean? And I'd also appeal to, 
the person's genuine desire to understand their sacred scripture and to read it with integrity. If the Bible's not saying what they think it's saying, then surely they would want to know what it might really be saying. What about you? So one of the questions I always ask my students is, whose agenda is being served in my reading of a biblical text? It's mm, a good question. Is my reading life-affirming? Does it celebrate and encourage people to live into the fullness of their humanity? Or is my reading serving, in this instance, a homophobic agenda? And if you're reading the Bible to confirm your prejudices and to deny life and to deny wholeness to others, then you're using the Bible as a weapon of abuse. And that's not okay. And I think the other thing I'd say is that, comparatively speaking, the Bible says an awful lot about things like justice and liberation for the oppressed, about economic redistribution, and about welcoming those on the margins, than it does about who you should or shouldn't have sex with. Totally, yeah, I agree. If you're really serious about basing your life on the Bible, then perhaps you should start living out those imperatives first. Okay, rant over. No, that was a good rant, and I completely agree with every word of it. Okay, so thanks for sticking with us as we went through all these clobber texts together. I don't know about you, Em, but I'm feeling vaguely clobbered myself after wading through them all. So to lighten the mood, shall we share with the listeners what we've been reading and or listening to this week? Good idea. Well, sticking with our theme, I'm going to plug a podcast called Beyond the Rainbow. It's a show about crimes committed by and against the LGBTQ plus community. Uh-huh. In particular, the podcast profiles some of the lesser known crimes against queer people and queer communities, those crimes that don't always reach our news feeds. All oh, right, I'm going to check that out. Um, I'm going to plug the podcast I mentioned earlier in the episode, QAnon Anonymous hosted by Jake Rokotansky, Julian Fields and Travis View. And I just think that they do a really great job of untangling and deconstructing a lot of current conspiracy theories, really damaging conspiracy theories, including QAnon, the Satanic Panic and Pizzagate, as well as offering some really fascinating commentary on US and UK politics. It's a really informative podcast. It is a bit addictive and it's very, very funny too. So I would definitely recommend that one. Excellent. So the resources we used for this episode are listed in our show notes, which you'll find on our website, along with the links to our social media accounts. But until next time, stay safe and see you later. Bye, everyone. Bye. The Bloody Bible podcast is supported by funding from the United Kingdom Arts and Humanities Research Council as part of the Shiloh Project Research Grant. Special thanks to Professor Johanna Stiebert at the University of Leeds who commissioned us to create the podcast. The podcast is produced by Carolyn Blythe, Emily Colgan and me, Richard Bonifant, who also recorded and painstakingly edited each episode. Our music is Stalker by Alexis Ortiz Sofield, courtesy of Pixabay Music, and the podcast artwork was created by Sarah Lee West. As mentioned in the podcast, there are lots of links available in the podcast notes. Please visit us on social media. We'd love to hear from you.